By way of review, name me the kinds of sacrifices that we have learned about. Burnt offerings. Burnt offerings. Sin offerings. Sin offerings. That's not one of the major ones. Let's... Peace offerings. Uh, Thanksgiving being a type of peace offering. Spices. Uh, no, you lost me on that one. Uh, the other one was a trespass offering, otherwise known in our translate in New American Standard as a guilt offering. So this was a chart we did last time on that. Um, and it's on the on the chart in the order that it appears in the book of Leviticus. Um, but when they offered, if they would offer, oh, you know, we we forgot the green offering. We were listening to all these things. We, we left out the green. Okay, all right, green. Yeah. Um, when they offered these, which one would they? If the the trespass or guilt is is a just an enhancement on the sin offering. So just taking the first four. If they offered all four of them, which one would be first? Sin offering. Sin offering. Which one would be second? Then the burnt offering. And then uh, I think the grain offering comes next and then the peace offering. I might have the last two backwards, but I think that's the order of it. So the peace offering could include uh, food, grain, um, but the grain offering was, was in a little bit different category. So that's um, that's where we what we did last time, and then um, I want to look at our outline. And it's a little bit difficult to outline Leviticus. Um, it, it's um, I think I think our author here is probably accurate in the two sections that there's. There's two reasons why I see the two sections. One reason is that each section has a story in it. There's only two, two stories total for the whole book. And the story, the first story is what? They had a bayou getting killed because they did. They offered strange fire before God. The second story in the second half of the book is about what? Yeah, he was stoned to death for, for blaspheming God. And the two are, are obviously very closely related. Both were sins against God, and both ended in death. Um, so that shows us kind of two halves of the book. The other thing is the first half of the book ends with the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year. When and that 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 day was specifically connected with sin. Uh, the atonement was for the people's sins. Yes, right. That's when the high priest went in the most holy place. And then the second part ends with the year of Jubilee, which is the 50th year. After seven sabbatical years, you have the 50th year. And that is very similar to the Day of Atonement in that it also symbolizes forgiveness in, in kind of a different way. The slaves went free, the land reverted to the original owners. So that... Again, a picture of what we have in Christ. So, 
It makes sense that there's two halves of the book. Yeah, Tracy. I was just wondering, the <coughs> year of Jubilee, do they do, that, do they do that every 15th year? Or just once a year? I mean, every 15th yeah. yeah, it's supposed to be every 50th. I think it's... I think it may be every 49, but I don't know how the, exactly how they count. They go seven sevens, and then the next one is 50. And I don't know if the next seven starts with the year of Jubilee or with the year before, which was sabbatical year. Yeah. Did, they, did they actually keep that? We, we don't have any record of them keeping it. Um, but I mean, we don't have a record of... I mean, you could say that about most any of these laws in here. The laws are given, and then we have history, but the history doesn't say, oh, and he kept this law, or he kept that law. So, I don't, yeah. The uh, captivity in Babylon was 70 years. The implication there is that was 70 years of rest because they failed to observe the seventh year yeah, of rest. Yeah, that's right. Almost 500 years. Yeah, I don't know how mathematical it was intended to be, but yeah, that they, they had obviously skipped a lot of those. Yeah. Um, so the, the two halves, the, and we're, we're going to finish up the first half uh, this morning. The, the problem I have with the two halves is that there's a lot of chapters I could say, hey, I, that could go in the other, other half pretty easily. <laughs> it's just, it's not real obvious where the distinction is. But the first half is, um, we, we've titled it, How Israel is to Approach God. Uh, the first part very obviously goes with that sacrifices and and you know the anointing of the priests and all that very clearly goes with the how Israel is to approach God. But we're gonna to get to some of the things here in uh, you know family life and all that we say, well that could go over here and which I think it could. I mean it could go either place. And even the second half, the holiness of the people of God, there's still some things some mentions of sacrifices. And you say, well, you know, that might go in the first part. So it's it's not a clean break, but the fact that each of them ends in the highest um, uh, the highest uh, festival or observance of its particular category, I think, helps us to keep that um, keep that outline. So we're we're going to start section three or subsection three. The worshippers must be clean and. So we're going to look at a lot of different things that have to do with cleanness here. And what kind of cleanness are we talking about? So those that don't have, like, skin disease. Well, that's part of it. It's, but, I mean, there's there's a much broader category I'm looking for. What do you mean spiritually? Our spiritual understanding? Well, yeah, it's a ceremonial cleanness. I mean, we're not talking about people getting their hands dirty or something like that. And we're not even talking about sins in in terms of moral sins. Right, but the, the, the priests are supposed to be clean when they go in the tabernacle. But, I mean, if a, if a priest ha, uh, gets leprosy, for example, is that a sin? He's unclean. He's unclean, but is it a sin? No, I mean, the, the person has done nothing wrong to get leprosy. So we're talking about a ceremonial uncleanness here, um, and there's th- and and so that there are there are a number of things in this section that will make a person unclean, but they haven't sinned to become unclean. Um, sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes it's on purpose. There is even times you can become unclean on purpose, 
and it's not a sin. <laughs> it, it, so it's a little bit different category here. Um, the, the lesson God was trying to teach the people here was um, the, 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 the necessity for purity when we approach God. Well, while someone might become unclean, let me give an example how so you could do something on purpose that would make you unclean, but it's not a sin. Um, suppose uh, your brother dies. You've got to prepare the body for burial. You've got to go through all this. You've, you've got to take him and bury him. What does that do to you? It makes you unclean. But it was not. But it was not a sin to do that. However, what is the rule why you are unclean? You can't go into the tabernacle. That's right. You you you're, you cannot approach God's holy place when you're unclean, and that's the lesson that that all these things are, are trying to teach, and they're teaching it in a symbolic way. Um, we today are not under these laws, but we have to understand that in order to approach God, we must be clean, and we get clean how. By the blood of Jesus, that's right. Now, we have a part in it as well. We have to repent. We have to confess these sins, put them away. We have to be baptized to come into the church. Um, all these things are required for us to be cleaned before we can approach God. Um, yeah. Is that what those... What you were just talking about, is that symbolic what it what it means in our day and age? I mean, yes. What you just said. Yeah. Right. It's that's right. It's symbolizing spiritual holiness. Yeah. Um, so in um, chapter eleven, Edersheim has suggested that means personally clean, and, and um, if you look at chapter eleven, chapter eleven is almost entirely <coughs> concerned with clean and unclean foods. Now, now where's the first time we had the distinction between clean and unclean animals in the Bible? Noah. It was Noah, yes. He had to take extra animals that were clean with him on the ark, seven of those. And after he came out, what did he do with the clean animals? Sacrifice one of each on an altar. Yeah. And so this chapter, chapter 11, just explains which ones are clean, which ones are unclean. Of ordinary meat animals, what 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 makes it clean? No, no, it has nothing to do with the age. No, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with what it looks like. I'm to, there's certain certain kinds of animals that are clean, and certain kinds of animals that are unclean. There we go. All right. It has to chew the cud. If it doesn't chew the, if the animal does not chew the cud, it's not clean. What else? It has to have a split hoof. If if the if it has one single solid hoof, it's unclean. Now I don't know anything morally why one's better than the other, and I and I don't think the Bible teaches one's better than. It's just that that's God's definition of clean versus unclean. What's the cud? Cows have multiple stomachs, and they chew they chew grass, which we we cannot we cannot digest grass. They chew grass and they swallow it. Goes down their first stomach. It 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 turns there for a while. Then it comes back up, and they chew it in their mouth 
for a while longer and they swallow it and it goes to the next stomach. So you see it, you see cows, I mean if you see cows in a the field they'll, they'll often be chewing because it takes an awful lot of chewing to get grass to get, you know, chomped up and digested. Yeah, right. Yeah, the birds don't don't chew the cud and they don't have split hooves. So um, they 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 distinguish them just by a list. Here's the here's the ones that are clean. Here's the ones that are unclean. And it appears that basically the ones that are unclean are um, like vultures that that are eating um, dead meat. Um, so if they're vegetarian birds, then they're probably clean clean birds to eat. Um, and then there were insects as well. I think the only insect they were allowed to eat was the locust, or the, which is the same as the grasshopper. <laughs> Chocolate-covered grasshoppers? <anybody? laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, have you? No, I've no, I have not. Do they eat them in Africa? Not where I was, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people eat crows. Yeah. Not lots. Well, no, not lots. Now, alright, so that, that's, that's chapter 11. That's the personal cleanness. And again, mostly just to do with um, clean versus unclean animals and the fact that they couldn't eat um, the unclean um, meat. Uh, and of course, they couldn't sacrifice unclean animals either. Um, then um, chapter 12 introduces a topic for us about the, the uncleanness of the woman who gives birth um, and I'll just cover kind of a general topic we'll, we'll look at a big category here that's um, going to cover more than just chapter 12 the things that make unclean include probably everything connected to life. Um, having sex, which of course is necessary to have to procreate life. Having sex makes a person unclean until evening. And they have to wash all that. Um, the woman's monthly period makes her unclean for a certain number of days which again is connected with creating life. The woman having the child makes her unclean for either 40 days if it's a male child or 80 days if it's a female child. And death, touching a dead body, makes someone unclean. So you've got both ends of the spectrum here. <clears throat> and it, it's an interesting question. God obviously is trying to teach some kind of a lesson. He's not teaching it's a sin to have sex. He's not teaching that it's a sin to have a child. But there is something that is connected with it that is unclean. Now, if we start at the end and work back, it might be easier. That death came in because why? Sin. All right, yeah. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return, God told Adam in Genesis chapter 3. And we understand why death will be connected with sin. But the other end of the scale seems a little bit odd. Why would birth be connected with sin? But in fact, everyone who's ever born is being brought in to a sinful world. And if they live 
in just a few years, they will themselves be sinning. David expressed it in one of the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 51, but I'm not certain. He says, In in sin my mother conceived me. He didn't mean she was sinning to to conceive him. I'm, I'm quite... I'm certain that she was married and it was perfectly right. But what David is saying is that his sinful nature goes all the way back to the very beginning. And and I think all of us see that. I mean, uh, there's not I don't think there's a one of us here who can remember when they first started doing things that were not right. Okay, it goes all the way back. And in fact, the character of it goes back before we even are, are accountable for our actions. I mean, you, you can see little two-year-olds who are determined to have their own way and disobey their parents. Uh, they're not sinning, but that nature is, is what they're, what's going to get them in trouble in later years. In fact, no matter how old we are, we're still faced with that nature because we still don't like someone telling us what to do. <laughs> we still have to work to submit to authority, the ultimate authority being God. So that I think God is trying to teach that that, um, humans are not what are to be worshipped. Humans are unclean because of uh, we are sinful creatures. God alone is holy, and He is the one to be worshipped. Yeah, John. With regards to birth in Genesis, it says a woman, you said, will greatly multiply the pain in childbirth suggesting So that was also connected with yes. That that's that's a good point. That's a good observation. Yeah, Tracy. Be well there. Clean there. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know that. <laughs> yeah, Ralph. The um, was it after a period? I thought it was just after her the childbirth. She had to do it after after each month. I think it was an extended period. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, that. Um, boy, that'd get expensive. Um, yeah, certainly after the birth. And you remember when. Uh, Joseph and Mary came to the temple and they offered the two uh, pigeons because they were poor. Um, and 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 I can see it being after an extended illness, you know, with, with the discharge. Um, but I don't remember it being after each month. Um, we'll have to look um, as when we get there. I'm not sure what chapter it's in. If it is after childbirth, why would they do a sin offering? Um, hold that one we're going to hit it later when we get to the leprosy Uh, it's a good question I'm going to cover it all at one time yes well no I don't that, no, I don't think so. I think if you killed an animal, you would certainly touch the blood. I don't think that was a sin. But if you had an issue of blood, like that woman that touched Jesus' garment, that would make you unclean. 
And of course, you could not eat or drink blood. And I knew that a lot of the things were symbolic, but also I think um, there was a book that I read once um, called None of These Diseases, which just talked about how a lot of God's laws that you know kind of came down were because He knew which animals were mm-hmm. were safe, which ones were parasitic. And I wondered too if the whole blood thing, if it wasn't a way to keep people from spreading. Possible. Yeah. Well, I'll give you my opinion on that. I've not read that book, but I'm I'm certainly familiar with that. With it, it's a very famous book. It's been around for many years. None of these diseases. It's called. It was written by a medical doctor, um, and his thesis is that a number of the laws that you find that we find very strange, if if a people would keep it, they would be a healthier people. Now, I would certainly. I would certainly agree that none of the laws would make a person unhealthy. I mean, God did not command anything that would be harmful to them. Um, and and I, and, I, and maybe in that book that he, he gives a comparison with some of the health laws in Egypt, like um, putting a, a donkey's dung on, on a, an open sore or something to try to heal it, which, as we know, would be <laughs> about the worst thing you could do. Um, and you have nothing like that in, in the Law of Moses. I mean, nothing in the Law of Moses would... At, at least from what we know today of our medical knowledge today would be harmful to a person. But um, I think we're misreading these when these rules, like for, for leprosy, that's a very common one that people will talk about for leprosy. We, I think we're misreading it to think that was to try to keep uh, the disease from spreading. Um, because leprosy today, now, again, leprosy, the, the word covered a lot of different Categories. What we call today leprosy is also called Hansen's disease. And it's really not very contagious. I mean, you do catch it from other people, but um, it's not like someone breathes on you and you, now you have leprosy. Yet the requirement was for him to cover his upper lip. Why would that, why would that help? Why not cover much more contagious diseases like the flu or tuberculosis, something like that, which are not even mentioned in the law? Um, and he's to have his head uncovered. Um, it, most of the Jewish men would have had a, a turban, but while he has leprosy, he has his head uncovered. Well, that that wouldn't. Uh, I can't see how that's going to affect a person's health. Now, maybe a hundred years from now, someone will discover that yes, it helps get over leprosy if you don't have a hat on. But I think it's really. Uh, it, it, I think the laws had a different purpose, which is what I'm going to look at uh, this morning. Uh, so that that part to me is a minor issue which might not even be true. Uh, and the reason I say it might not even be true, nothing that I can read in the law says that was the reason for these things. They, they, all, they always have things like, you should be holy because I am holy. I mean, nothing like, you know, you shall do this because then you'll be healthier. So... Um, I don't think we're, we're going against the Bible to say, well, maybe that's not the case. And, and when you have leprosy, you even have leprosy of houses, you have leprosy on garments. It just it doesn't sound like a health thing, at least from what we know today. Although I guess you could, you know, we took people to talk about sick house syndromes, and maybe they were keeping people healthy by getting the mildew out of their houses. Yeah, John. Uh, it just occurred to me, uh, I had some disease uh, lesions. 
are often treated with exposure to uh, ultraviolet light. Oh, so maybe uncovering you that, all right, if he had leprosy on the top of his head, then that would help him. <laughs> uh, let's look at chapter 13 here. Uh, this is about, this, this is the chapter about leprosy, and, and actually chapter 14 as well. Um, and it goes into great detail about how the, the priest is to examine it and make sure it really is leprosy and not something else. But if it is, where does the person have to live? Outside the camp. Yeah, outside the camp, which later on meant outside of outside the walled city. Um, and there was a king who once got leprosy. He had to live outside the city. He couldn't be king anymore. Uh, no. Um, I don't remember his name. Was it... Um, Isaiah. We'll see when we get to it. It'll only be a few months. And he had to um, cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Um, but then in chapter 14, this is the law of the cleansing of the leper, if he got over it. And we were talking about this before the class started about whether anyone ever got over it. And I think... They must have. Um, again, there were diff- all different diseases could have could have fallen into this category. So, while some of the diseases, like Hansen's disease, I don't think there's any way a person gets over it without real medical treatment, and we have that treatment now. But disease? they didn't. You know, what? What disease? What disease did you just say? Hansen's disease. It's another name for for modern day leprosy. Um, they used to have a, a, a leper hospital in Louisiana. I don't think they have it anymore, but they do have some over in India. Um, and, and again, you don't get over that without serious medical treatment. But there were others that would have had the same symptoms and would have would have had the same consequence that you have to live outside the city that you might well have gotten over. And and so chapter 14 talks about what to do when you get over it. And you, it involves a guilt offering. And this is where we come back to Tracy's question why there was a sin offering when the woman had a child. And so the question I want to ask is, did the guy commit a sin to become guilty of leprosy? He did not. I mean, it's not a sin to have leprosy. I mean, sometimes it was a, a punishment. and we, Miriam got struck by, with leprosy for rebelling against Moses and that king I was mentioning got struck with leprosy for for trying to go into the temple. But most people that got leprosy, they hadn't done anything wrong. So why now have a guilt offering? Why have a sin offering? This is going to help us understand what these laws were about. They were they were it was symbolic. And leprosy symbolizes sin. Um, and, and if you think about it, the, the, the kind of leprosy we know of as the Hansen's disease really well symbolizes sin because it begins very slowly, imperceptibly. The first notice that a person often has with leprosy is that they have a spot on their, on their skin that doesn't feel pain. You can stick a pin in it and it doesn't hurt. Well, what does sin do? It hardens us. And, and the sin is going to grow. I mean, the leprosy is going to grow, the sin is going to grow. Uh, and so that's why the person is separated from the camp, because what he has symbolizes sin. So when, he, when he's cured, the, the, 
the, the ceremony is all a ceremony connected with sin. Um, what do you think of the strange thing about the two birds in the, connected with it? Can someone tell me what the two birds, what, what they did with the two birds? Well, one was sacrifice the blood was used Yes. And the other one was got a sprinkling and that was released. Yeah, the other one was actually dipped in a, a mixture of the blood of water and then he was released. And, and you think, and you listen to that, and you say, uh, "What's this about?" But hang on a sec. There's another ceremony in this same reading section we did today that also had two identical animals. One got killed and the other got released. And what was that? The scapegoat. Yes. On what day? The Day of Atonement. And both goats were for sin. The one was killed for sin. The other was was sent off into the wilderness carrying the sins away. Both connected with sin. So now you have a ceremony with this leprosy which is a miniature version of the atonement. Instead of goats, it's birds. But they're doing the same thing with, with the birds as they did with the, with the goats. And you have this, this guilt offering, you have a, a number of other things to go with it. But if, if we understand that the purification is, is symbolic of a purification of sin, then it makes sense. The leprosy is something that is designed to represent sin. And so all the ceremonies connected with it are, are ceremonies that we, we realize are connected with ceremonies for sin. And so the, the same thing with, with the birth. It's, the ceremony is a ceremony connected with sin because, as I said, the, the beginning and the end of human life is all connected with sin. And... It's a, there's a literary figure called an inclusio. We, we talked about this quite a bit in the book of Revelation where a, a section of, of a chapter would begin with a, a certain phrase and would end with a certain phrase. And the inclusio is designed to show that everything in between is covered. Or another way of looking at it, you remember how Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? Does that mean He's only the beginning and the end and nothing in between? Obviously, when it says he's the beginning and the end, he's everything. He's all in between. And so when when these ceremonies are trying to say that the beginning of life is unclean, the end of life is unclean, what they're saying is that humans are unclean. The whole, the whole thing. Beginning to end, we are unclean creatures. And so that, that that sacrifice was just another symbol to try to teach this. And, and it's important for us to understand that because unless we understand that we are unclean, we're going to have a false idea about what it means to approach God. I mean, think about your friends in the world. They all think that they're fine. They do nice things for their neighbors. And, and, and they think nice thoughts about God and they, they thank Him when He does something particularly nice for them. The one thing they're missing is the fact that they are unclean. They can't approach God like that. It requires sacrifice. And, and, and that's what the New Testament is all about. That we have the sacrifice. And we have to come to God through that sacrifice. We can't just go and, and approach God just on the basis that I'm a nice guy and God, you know, God created me so He's going to like to hear from me. We have to do it on His terms. 
And that's what these ceremonies were trying to teach the people in, in, we could say, in an elementary school sense. Teaching them in symbols. Getting them ready for Christ. And so, with the leprosy, we also have the leprosy of a garment. And, and spiritually, we have to clothe ourselves with purity. We have a leprosy of a house. And spiritually, we are the house of God. This church is a house of God. What are we supposed to do if this church gets leprosy on the wall? I don't mean the building. <laughs> I'm talking about the spiritual church and a spiritual wall. What if it gets leprosy there? Remove the stones. That's right. So we're talking about church discipline here. And if you don't remove the stones, then everything in the house becomes unclean. Remember how I talked about that? Um, uh, it starts in, in verse 33 about the house. Yeah. Um, all right. So then in, uh, in chapter 15, let's see. We're still in the section of the worshipers of the clean as a congregation. Uh, 15 talks about things that are a little bit less um, common, like someone that has a discharge in his body um, and how to and what to do with that. Um, I guess that really is the whole chapter's on that. Any questions up through chapter 15 then? Now we, we come to the holiest day of the of the Jewish year. <coughs> Chapter 16 is about what? The Day of Atonement. The day of atonement. Uh, what's the Jewish term for Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Very good. <coughs> um, yes, oh, they still keep... Yes, although they don't have a high priest today and they don't have a temple, so they don't... They don't do any of the things we're going to look on the list here. I got this list out of pulpit commentary, which of course took it from chapter 16. <clears throat> There's 18 things. I, so we'll, this is a two-part two, two chart here. It was a very busy day for the high priest. <clears throat> and, I, and there's some things that may surprise you as we go through this, because it surprised me. All right. And his day starts, he goes to the tabernacle and he, he bathes. Then he dresses himself in his white holy garments. Anything unusual about that? Well, the high priest had additional garments over the white priest. Yes. What color were those? Uh, blue. Blue, and and there were I, I th and there were some other colors, of course, with the, the with the gold threads uh, and yeah, the, uh, the 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 gold bells and the pomegranates on the bottom of the robe uh, and the the uh, twelve jewels on his breastplate. None of that was worn when he went into the most holy place. And and if you think about that, you think, that's crazy. Why does he have the fancy outfit if he can't wear it on the one day of the year when he does what only the high priest is allowed to do? So maybe that's to do with humility. It used to be... Well, that just colors. Yeah, uh, a lot of people have suggested that. I'm not... I, I don't know that white symbolizes humility, though. No, but... Um, let me suggest another way of looking at it. The fancy clothes that he wore 
What was, what was he designed to represent with those fancy clothes? Heaven. He was supposed to represent heaven. He was in effect representing God to the people, wasn't he? But on the Day of Atonement, he was representing the people to God. It, it, it was a different. He, he, the high priest filled two different roles. He represents God in one role. He represents humans in the other role. Of course, our high priest was both God and man. And so he fills both those roles as well. And when he filled the role as being a human, he took off his garments of glory and he came to this earth as, as a humble human being. That's Jesus. Yes, that's right. That's Jesus. And so, um, when the high priest dressed himself in his white holy garments, they're just plain, but they're pure. And that's what Jesus wore on earth. He was a human being without sin. He, so he had just plain white garments. But his glory was what he, what he had before he came to this earth. So then, step three, he offered at the door of the tabernacle a bullet for a sin offering for himself and for his family. Um, then, at the same place, he, he presented two goats for a sin offering for the congregation. The bullet was for himself, the goats were for the congregation. And he cast lots on the two goats. One was picked to be sacrificed, the other was to be let go into the wilderness to carry their sins away. Uh, both represented the same thing, taking sins away. Then he, he sacrificed the bullet. Then he went through the holy place into the Holy of Holies with a censer and incense. A censer being kind of a pan uh, with, with um, coals of fire on it. And he, he, once he got in there, he dumped the incense on the censer and the space beyond the veil was filled with a cloud of incense. It was designed to kind of obscure it so he couldn't see things as clearly came back out to the court in front of the tabernacle, took some of the blood of the bullet, went back behind the veil, sprinkled it once in front of the mercy seat and seven times in front of it. Then he came out and he killed the goat that, they, that the law had fallen on to die. And for the third time he went into the most holy place and sprinkled the goat's blood just like he had done with the bullock's blood. Then he purified the other part of the tabernacle by sprinkling the blood... And, and then he put some of it on the horns of the altar of incense. That, that was the golden altar right in front of the, of the veil. <clears throat> then he came back out to the court and he put the blood of the bullet and the goat on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and he sprinkled that seven times. Then the remaining goat he offered to God, he laid his hands upon it, confessed the sins of the people on his head, and he gave the goat to a man whose job was to take it out to the wilderness and release it. And I, if I recall right, that guy had to wash his clothes afterwards too. Because um, anything connected with sin or a sin offering makes a person unclean. Um, then the high priest bathed Change the white garments for the fancy high priest dress. And then he sacrificed two rams as burnt offerings to himself and for the people. He burnt the fat of the sin offerings on the altar. And he assigned someone to take what was left of the sin offerings outside the camp. And you remember, you, the, you always had to burn those sin offerings entirely 
and it was outside the camp in a clean place where they deposited the ashes from the altar. I was wondering to go back to the other time, the um, when he went into the he went into the most holy, did he? Yes, three three times he went in there. Did he have the golden bells to let him know that he was going in there? No. So he didn't no. die. He, now th- those bells were not were not to be worn inside the most holy place. Um, it, it's a misunderstanding to think those bells were to kind of warn God that He was approaching. That's not what they were for. <clears throat> the bells w- would be the sort that when He went into the first room, He never wore the bells in the second room. But He went into the first room, the people outside could hear Him moving around in there, and they were in effect participating in the worship. So when God says so that he will not die, God was just basically saying that's that's my commandment for him, and, and he's got to do it or else he's going to die. Yeah, I, I've had that misunderstanding in the past too, and, and that's why I said you might. I thought people would be surprised when they found out that he didn't wear the fancy clothes inside the, <laughs> the most holy place. I was always pictured that way myself. <clears throat> that then finishes up the first section of the book. The second section is the holiness of the people of God, and we'll we'll just look briefly at some of these things. Um, in chapter 17, a command was given, which I think only applied while they're in the wilderness, that anyone that killed an animal had to take it to the tabernacle to kill it, because they were trying to. God was training the people not to offer these animals to idols. Was what He was trying to do. Um, then in chapter 18, it has a number of relationships they cannot enter into. It covers the general category of incest. They couldn't intermarry with close relatives. And he goes into all the details about that. Um, and that was so that they would be a holy people. In, in chapter 19, it's sort of a miscellaneous list here. Um, uh, uh, against idolatry, against um, well, just just a whole bunch of things, um, stealing, uh, bearing false witness, um, yes, the Ten Commandments, of course, are the foundation of all these of all these laws, um, but it's hard to categorize them. Like in verse twenty-three, when you enter in the land and you plant a fruit tree. Um, you can't eat the fruit for three years. The fourth year, the fruit is dedicated to God, and the fifth year, you get it for yourself. Um, so, I mean, I'm not sure how you categorize that, except that the holiness of the people of God, even the pro- produce of the land, is holy to God. I guess it would fit there. And um, well, of course, the land had been cursed by the sins of the Canaanites. So there's sort of a necessity. Yes, that's that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Um, next time we'll finish the book of of Leviticus. Uh, we'll be um, we'll look at some more of the, the rules about holiness. We'll look about at the one story in this section in the year of jubilee, and then we'll have these two final chapters to wrap up the book. Uh, any other questions or comments? Yeah, Ralph. What is the book of Numbers about? Um, <clears throat> It's a history of the people going through the wilderness. It, it covers about 40 years. 
The reason it's called numbers is that they, they number the people at the beginning of the 40 years and at the end of the 40 years. Deuteronomy is the second law. It, uh, it's a repeat of the law. So if you enjoyed Leviticus, <laughs> it, it's, not quite, it's not quite as dry as Leviticus because it has quite a few stories in it too. But it has a lot more laws as well. And, and with Deuteronomy, that's the last of Moses' books. He wrote the Pentateuch for the five books. So, Good, anything else? Well, I appreciate everyone's help this morning. Nice job. <laughs> Thank you.